Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Radley Show for this Tuesday evening, the 1st of November. The beginning, apparently, for better or for worse, of Christmas. Yes, I, I, I heard the second, not even the first, I heard my second Christmas TV commercial today. The first one was several days ago. I heard my second, we are only hours after Halloween. The decorations aren't even down. We have not hit Remembrance Day yet. We have not hit American Thanksgiving yet. Already, Christmas is well underway. I mean, of course, at Costco, Christmas has been underway since, well, the day after Canada Day. But nonetheless, in the rest of the real world, does this not still seem really, really early? I mean, really early? Uh, I guess, you know, I, I, I guess the companies have to make their money. It's been a rough little while here. We've got a recession apparently coming up. So I guess everybody has to get while the getting's good, as it were. And if we can sell some stuff before things get tight, well, good for the companies, I guess. But a little early for me. And I I, I am not, I mean, I, look, I love Christmas as much as the next guy. I am not going to be giving the big friendly neighborhood wave to the neighbor who puts up their Christmas lights before Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day should be the absolute earliest that anyone should even ponder Christmas. I would argue that December 1st should be when it should start. Nonetheless, beating Remembrance Day to the punch, now we're now we're way off track. We've lost the narrative completely. Anyway, welcome to what apparently is the start of the Christmas season. No carols that, well, I don't have control of the music. So I'm I'm hoping there are no carols on the show today. We'll see. We'll see what Matt has up his sleeve. Welcome to the show, though. We do have lots of other stuff besides carols and any kind of Christmas shopping tips. This isn't the view. Uh, we are going to be talking about the education situation, the education union showdown with the province that's leading to perhaps to the notwithstanding clause being brought into play it is uh it is once again an education union squaring off with a government and regardless of your thoughts on the notwithstanding clause or how the conservative government is handling this it's become impossible not to say that every government of every political persuasion seems to have problem with labor or with education, well, labor unions. Go back to the 1970s, through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. There's, there's been labor showdowns, no matter what stripe the government is. How is that? Why is that? We're trying to get into that. Uh, later in this hour, we're going to go to the phones. We're going to let you have your say where you stand on this. Some are very, very supportive of the education workers of the support workers saying they are underpaid and the government should be giving them a lot more money. That's, that's fine. You're that's, that's totally allowed to be your point of view. Others say 11% is an asinine ask. They haven't moved off that. What do you expect is going to happen when you won't move off on an 11% raise? No one's getting that. Well, that can be your opinion too, or anything else. We'll get to that at the bottom of the hour. Next hour, really looking forward to this one. We're going to be talking to a Hamilton guy who has just been hired by the Chicago Cubs as their sports scientist, as their baseball scientist. I don't know what that means. I don't know what he's going to do. 
I certainly know that I would not be qualified, but that sounds like a really cool job. And working for the Cubs at Wrigley Field all the time, my goodness, that sounds like an amazing job. We'll get to that next hour. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com for sport and for safety. It has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code Radley at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. Now, I heard something today. I learned a little fact today, a little story today that may be news to none of you. Everyone listening may have heard this story before. I didn't. And I thought it was an amazing story. So in the few minutes before we have to go to a break here, I thought I would share this story because I thought this was just really cool. Julia Roberts, it turns out, her birth was paid for by an unbelievable celebrity. Have you heard this story of how Julia Roberts was, well, we know how she was born, but you know, back in the day, not everyone had health insurance down in the States, still don't some of them. And so they had to pay for their care. And it seems Julia Roberts family uh, didn't have a whole lot of cash. She does now (laughs) between her and her brother, Eric. I don't know if you know Eric Roberts, he's an actor too. And her nephew, Eric's daughter, or Eric's son, Eric's daughter, pardon me, her niece. I'll I'll get it right. Julia Roberts' niece, Eric's daughter, is also an actress. Um, They've got some money now. They could afford to pay for a birth now. But back then, they couldn't. So the story goes that the person, well, they go into the hospital, and the people who offered and did end up paying the hospital for Julia Roberts' birth was Dr. Martin Luther King and his wife, Coretta Scott King. Yeah. Had you heard this? I had not heard this. Again, the story goes that back then, they were the, the parents were friends because Julia Roberts' mother had a, an acting school. And the Kings were looking for someplace for their kids to get involved in some things and asked if they could come and go to the acting school. And of course, they said, The Roberts said yes, and they became friends. And then when it came time for Julia Roberts to be born, it was the Kings, Dr. Martin Luther King and his wife who paid for that. Uh, That is, that's a cool story. I don't, I don't know what your brush with celebrity is along the way. I don't know what your moment of meeting someone, a lot of people have had one. I don't know. You probably send us an email or a, or a text. 905-645-3221. Who's your brush with fame? I'd love to hear it. 905-645-3221. Send a text. Include your name. Who was your brush with fame? What was the story? Through the show today. If we get any, we'll, we'll, we'll share some. But that is a pretty cool brush with fame. That your birth was paid for by Dr. Martin Luther King. I don't have a, I don't have a brush with fame that can compare to that. It's not a contest, so that's okay. I feel better, but you know what? If you've got one, if you have a, if you have a brush with fame, let us know because I, even if it's not quite rising to the level of being, having your birth paid by one of the great, or if the, not the greatest civil rights leader of all time, uh, still worth hearing about it. Let us know. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to get into speaking of money and paying for things. Why is it? that seemingly every single government in Ontario has run afoul of education unions. Why can nobody get along with them or vice versa? We'll do that next. Stay with us. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Welcome back to the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Well, I, I'm assuming that you've been paying some attention to what's going on in the news and that you have heard something about what's happening with the education workers and with the provincial government invoking or threatening to invoke the notwithstanding clause to prevent a strike and then talk of a stoppage, a protest on Friday that some school boards are now saying they'll be closed if that happens. It is it is a typical mess, although it's hardly the first time we've seen this, maybe with this particular group. But if you live in Ontario, I think it's a reasonable thing to say to suggest that well, issues around the government and education are not all that uncommon. We've seen showdown after showdown after showdown. I want to bring in Dr. Paul Christopher Gray. He's an assistant professor in labor studies at Brock University. He joins us now. Uh, doctor, thanks for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for having me. As I say, uh, before we get into the issue and the notwithstanding clause, and before we even get into which side anyone is on on this thing, because everyone's going to have their side, it is, I don't think, unfair to say that education and government, regardless of the stripe, have been oil and water in this province for a long time now. I think that's right. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, major political parties um, for the last few decades have had uh, a policy of wage restraint, and this has come up against some of the demands being made by uh, workers in the education sector, uh, whether they be teachers or now uh, education workers. Uh, and so, yes, this is uh, the latest in a uh, long-running series of conflicts. Is it is it unique to education or is it just we see more of it for two reasons? One, because there's many, many educate, well, three reasons. There's many education workers. There are a number of unions, but also because it's very personal because our kids potentially are involved. Uh, I think that might be uh, part of it for sure. Uh, and I think we have uh, very well organized uh, unions mm -hmm. in uh, the education sector here. Uh, although, you know, we're starting to see more and more of uh, a conflict brewing with healthcare workers as well, uh, something else to keep an eye on. One of the really tricky, tricky parts about this and kind of fascinating parts about this is that there has been, as I said off the top, this, this is not a conservative government problem. I mean, Bill Davis, going back to the 70s, had a challenge, had a showdown and a strike with the teachers and labor or and, uh, education unions. But Mike Harris has had it. Dalton McGinty has had it. Kathleen Wynne has had it. Now Doug Ford has had it. Bob Ray had it. There is no political color that, that makes this better or worse. It's, it's all governments of all stripes. Uh, well, I think I think that's right. Uh, but I think that there are some aspects of uh, this particular conflict between education workers and the Doug Ford government that uh, are unique. And uh, the invoking of the notwithstanding clause in this case is historically unprecedented. It hasn't happened in this way before. Uh, unquestionably, although you could have said that when Bob Ray brought in Ray days, that that was unprecedented and it never happened before. So, I mean, these things have, again, the, the point is not, and we'll get to it, the point is not about who's the worst. Um, the point is that education unions have had trouble no matter who the government is. It's just, it's never been smooth sailing or very rarely anyway. 
Well, it's been uh, contentious for sure, but uh, it's often occurred through the, the legally prescribed procedures of collective bargaining and strikes. And uh, there's you know, recent Supreme Court rulings that argue these workers uh, have this right as part of their charter rights for freedom of association. And so, uh, yes, there can be a lot of contentiousness between a group of workers and uh, various governments, whatever the government may be. Um, but uh, yeah, there are some, some really unique uh, uh, aspects of this particular conflict for sure. Do you think this will ratchet up the animus between the unions and the conservatives? Because the conservatives are always the one that seems to be the most likely to fall afoul of the unions. Is Do you, do you expect this will make things even worse than it would have been with the other parties? Uh, I think that the conservative government is taking this unprecedented step in part to send a message to uh, the other unions in the education sector, uh, the teachers unions who are uh, currently bargaining uh, with the government. Uh, it's also worth noting that uh, the Ford government has tried to cast itself as being uh, pro-worker and has received some endorsements, uh, mainly from uh, private sector uh, unions in uh, construction trades and the like. Um, but even today, uh, Layuna, one of the uh, 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 one of the first, uh, I think perhaps the first uh, major union to endorse Ford uh, in the mo most recent provincial election uh, has actually come out with a public letter uh, demanding that Ford uh, stop trading on the collective bargaining rights of these education workers uh, to come back to the table and to negotiate with them rather than legislating them back to work. So uh, I think that's an interesting development. You also said something that I think is really important to this discussion, <clears throat> excuse me, and that is that we are going to be facing other negotiations or we are facing other negotiations with teachers unions. The fact that this particular union that we're talking about right now has been all has been has taken the position that they want 11, I think, or 11 point something percent a year for three years. Mm -hmm. Has that made this more difficult? Because if, if the government gives them that or anywhere close to that, they have all these other unions lining up behind saying, well, we want ours now. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, as is often the case with uh, these kinds of negotiations, they can set precedents one way or the other, and that would be true. That would be true in this case as well. However, uh, a lot of these uh, workers, uh, these education workers, you know, we're talking about people working in the libraries, the early childhood education specialists. Uh, we're talking about, you know, education assistants, custodians. Uh, a lot of them are making uh, fairly low wages uh, for uh, many of these workers. They are not actually meeting a living wage in uh, the GTA. And uh, so I think that they're, their wage demands are in part uh, a reflection of some of the low wages amongst uh, their members. And I think what they would say is that, you know, over the last uh, decade, they have, their wages have only increased 8.8%. Uh, and uh, inflation uh, has gone up by at least 19% in that time. And so actually for a decade, uh, they have experienced uh, cuts to their real wages, to their actual purchasing power, and the wage demands uh, being uh, proposed by the government 
would be a nominal increase uh, in in the wages, but because it comes nowhere close to inflation, that too would result in a cut to real wages and purchasing power. So I think that's the thing that these education workers are are focusing on. One more thing before we have to go, and that is, does it, do they need the public support to win? And the only reason I ask that question, because often that will help you in a negotiation, especially with a public sector union, there's an awful lot of people who, as you describe losing purchasing power in the private sector, who would hear this and say, yeah, but I've lost purchasing power too, and I'm not getting mm-hmm. 11%. And so mm-hmm. I, this doesn't, this seems like a time when it may be a little more difficult to get a lot of those private sector people on board because they're in the exact same boat. Yeah, although I think the uh, letter from uh, Layuna uh, is quite interesting in this respect. It shows solidarity between uh, largely private sector and public sector workers here. And I think uh, for these education workers and uh, for public sector workers in general, uh, the goal in any of these conflicts with the government is always that, you know, other workers aren't asking the question, why do they have so much? Uh, It's rather, why do I have so little? And uh, why can't I have uh, a bigger share of the pie as well? Uh, So I think, you know, this this conflict and the political aspects of this conflict are uh, going to play out uh, in in the coming days and weeks. And uh, I think that invoking this unprecedented measure of the notwithstanding clause is also going to negatively impact the, the public public image of the, the government in this respect. It is going to draw that line in the sand even deeper, I would suspect. Dr. Paul Christopher Gray from Brock University, so much appreciate your time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Your turn now. You've been hearing lots about what's going to happen with the schools and with the education workers and the notwithstanding clause and strike, no strike, 11%, 2%, whatever. Where do you stand on this? Are you on board with the government saying we can't afford to give people, I don't care who they are, 11% wage increases? And... You know what? If we have to get them back to work or keep them at work, if the notwithstanding clause is all that it takes, then we'll do that. Or are you siding with the education workers? Now, they're the support workers, not teachers, but janitors and assistants and things like that saying, look, they are among the lower paid workers within the system. They haven't had a lot of increases over the last number of years. It's time for them to catch up. I'm okay with a big raise for them to make that happen. Where are you on this? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers to call in. You can text me at 905-645-3221. Text your thoughts there. Uh, Which side do you find yourself on with this one? Here's the reason we asked this question, and I was touching on it with the professor just before the break. Any public sector labor dispute ultimately is going to in some manner come down to public support it's a political thing if the public shows that it is strongly behind the union strongly behind the workers governments generally capitulate if the public shows that it's generally behind the government it will be emboldened to keep going it will 
it will be seen to have the support of people to then say, no, they're not in favor of tax dollars going to all this. Would love to, would love to hear what you have to say. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers. 905-645-3221 is the text line. You can text me there and you can email me, Radley, R-A-D-L-E-Y, Radley at 900CHML.com. Fred is up first today. Fred, how are you? Hello, Fred. Oh, having a little bit of a, a blip with Fred right now. We will get him in just a second. But this is a, there is more to this also than just the 11% of, that these workers are asking for. And, and we touched on it as well in the last segment. There are a bunch of teacher union contracts coming up. If you give 11%, I'm not saying the teachers are going to be asking for 11%, but if you give 11%, do you worry if you're a government that you are setting a precedent that you're then setting yourself up that when the next round of negotiations comes, you're going to be snookered? Or do you think that the teachers union say, no, we're, we're good with them catching up. We're going to ask for a reasonable number. Let's try Fred again. Fred, are you there? Yes, I am. There's Fred. How are you tonight? Not bad, Scott. Nice to hear from you. Thank you. You too. Okay, I I don't I don't mind them getting a, a kind of a raise. Okay, a lot of these people, but on the Catholic school board, there's no union on the clean cleaning people. Okay, they have no union. Okay, and that's why Daly says they'll close, but they don't have a union anyway. So I don't know what he's worried about. The Protestants are still going to carry on. They have unions, okay? But I don't mind them getting a little bit of a raise, the teachers, but not 11%. I'm a taxpayer, so are you. And right now, paying taxes and everything else with hydro and everything else going up, my wages isn't going up, too. I work for the city, and I'm a school crossing guard, and I'm lucky I got 1% raise, okay? And That's these what a people, lot of people are talking yeah. about 11%, like... Give their head a shake. Like the money is Fred, only, only go so far. Fred, and these that's what a lot of people are good saying. Talk already, Scott. These school teachers. Well, you so know, okay, Fred, hold on a second. My fault that they have a real problem, like everybody else, financially. Fred, you know, let me jump in for a sec. So these are not the teachers. I want to clarify this. So, the, so the argument that is being made is that these are not make these people are not making that good money because they're not teachers, they're down much, much lower. However, we've got to go to the next call. Fred, I appreciate you calling. I really do. However, Fred's point, and it's a valid one, I think, for an awful lot of people is, and I talked about it last segment with the professor, I don't know how much sympathy these folks in this union are going to get asking for 11% when many, many, many people coming out of COVID, especially in the private sector, have lost hours, lost a job, their business is suffering, they haven't got any kind of increase. Yes, the buying power for a lot of people has gone down because of inflation, but if you're in the private sector and you hear some group asking for 11% a year over three years, I'm not sure that's a sympathy-generating move. Let's go to Rob. Rob is waiting on the line. Rob, how are you tonight? Not too bad, you? I'm terrific, thanks. What do you think, Rob? Where are you on this one? Uh, I don't mind having, having a raise, but I just want to know at the end of the three years, 11%, what is their total income after three years? 
Like, what's their hourly wage after that? Is that I got to be like 30 bucks an hour or something? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I think, and I'm looking it up frantically as we're talking here, Rob, I think that I read that they were that some of these people averaged about $39,000 a year. I think I saw yeah. that somewhere. So if you add 30% to that, that's another 13,000, so you're up to 52. Um, well, that's average, I suppose, but 11% is quite a bit. Because I've been at my job 27 years. In 27 years, I got $9 raise. Okay? Yeah. So you tell me, is 11% uh, too much? To me, it is. They deserve a raise, but 11% is a little too much. So let me ask you this, Rob, and, and if you, because I agree with you, I, I don't object to them getting a raise. I don't. Uh, and I no, think neither a lot do of people, I. I and I, yeah, and I think a lot of people probably don't object to them getting a raise. But, but I think that when you come in at 11%, even if that's just your starting position in a negotiation, I think a lot of people immediately turn off the discussion and go, oh, forget it then. I think that's I think that's a that's a, a I think that's a poor place to start. It's a poor way to get a negotiation started, especially in the public. Yep. And at the end of the day, like you said earlier, teachers are next. What are they going to want? That's uh, that's a tricky part of it. Oh, thank you for the call. Yes, yep. that is a Thanks very no tricky part of this because you do it, anything a government does, right? Even even if we're talking one union that has members who do different work. Anything that a government does is going to set a precedent for down the road. You're going to have medical people, health people who are going to have contracts that need to be negotiated. You're going to have teachers, as, as Rob said, next. Uh, you're going to have others. If you give, forget 11%, let's say you gave 7%, Let's say, let's go even half. Let's say you gave 6%, and I know that's not quite half. I, my math is bad, but not that bad. But nonetheless, let's say you gave 6% a year for three years because you say these people in this union have not caught up and they need to catch up a little bit more. That's fine, but you know that that's then going to be the baseline, or at least you would expect that'll be the baseline for everyone else. How do you deal with that then? Because then the real money comes down the road. Nikki is waiting to join us tonight. Nikki, how are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I am great. Thanks for calling in. Where Where are you on this one? Um, I will not and cannot support the government on this one. Okay. And it has nothing to do with um, the numbers involved here. It's a lot about the process to me. Okay. The notwithstanding clause, you mean? Uh, about an imposed contract. The, the province paid out $100 million to the teachers' unions like last year because they imposed a contract. And it's like the government has learned nothing. People have rights. The charter guarantees them those rights. And the gov this government has decided that they're going to just, you know, put those aside and do what they want to do. They're not respecting the process at all. I, I think there are, um, Nikki, honestly, I do believe that there, is a, there are a lot of people who share your point of view. So let me ask you, I mean, based on that, because again, I don't think that you are screaming at windmills. I think there are people who would agree with you for sure. I know there are. 
what do you do if the negotiation is that we're at 11% and we won't come down and it's not been getting any closer and it looks like we're heading for a strike? What, how do you negotiate this? And I, I don't know if you're a union negotiator and I'm putting you in an awkward spot, but I mean, there has to be give and take in these things. And it, it, it seems tough. Neither side is giving yet. I, I just, I like, I guess there there would be give and take. I, I mean, at some point, the membership would say, you know, we're happy with 4%. We're happy with 6%. 11% to me was always, in my mind, just a starting place. It, it never was the it's a, I, listen, I really appreciate your call, Nikki. I'm glad someone spoke for the other side because I do think there are people and probably many people who agree with you. Thank you for calling in today. I think we lost Nikki there. Uh, just before we go to a break, um, Dan writes in, the government, um, sorry, the government wants to avoid closing schools. They should offer more than 1.5%. With inflation, that's a pay cut. This government is being a bully. Okay, and Paul writes in and says, we had a previous caller say that the workers at the Catholic schools are not unionized. He says, yes, they are. The custodians are with Leuna. I don't know that for a fact, but Paul is a person I know who I trust, so I will go with that one. Um, it, it is an interesting one. It really is an interesting one. I don't, I, I don't love the idea of the government wielding this notwithstanding clause club. I don't, because I think it opens the door to use in other ways down the road. I, 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 I'm very reluctant to use these things, just like the Emergencies Act. By the same token, I, I don't know if we get, if we're at 11% and this number isn't seen to move, isn't moving, there's no way that a government is going to give 11% over three years. There is just no way. And again, not even, I don't believe, because of this union. If this union stood alone, if this union was the only thing that the government had to deal with, maybe you do get eight or nine because they've been not getting raises for a while. But this doesn't operate in a vacuum. And the second you give a big, big raise, and I mean more than two, two and a half percent, like three into three, into the four, into the five, as soon as you get there, you you have a real challenge on your hands, I would expect, when the next contract comes up with someone else. And I, I don't know this, I'm suspecting this, that if you were to ask people in the government why this one is being held, why the line on this one is being held so strongly and something that seems like you could get away with giving more, I would bet you that it's because they're trying to make a precedent that's not going to end up biting them down the road. However, we'll see where this one goes. Let's take a break. When we come back, it'll be time for Tom's, sto- Matt's, sorry, Matt's in today. Matt's story of the day. We'll do that next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It is time for Matt's story of the day. Here's how this works. Matt is back at the office. I am going to give Matt three stories, unusual stuff from different places around the globe. Matt will then decide which one he likes best. And that becomes Matt's story of the day. Feel free to play along. We The, the magic of technology allows this. Text us. 905-645-3221. Send a text with which one would be your story of the day if you were in the hot seat. Uh, Matt, are we ready to go? I'm ready to go. Let us start now. I wish this was in Canada, and it may be at some point. Right now, it appears that it's only in the States. However, uh, 
There is a jigsaw puzzle. We were talking at the top of the show that Christmas is coming. We've now entered the Christmas season. We're starting to see Christmas ads. Well, if you're really eager to do Christmas shopping, there is a jigsaw puzzle that is available for sale at Costco that is, when put together, 29 feet wide with 60,000 pieces. In the event that you have no life or want to simply lock yourself in your home for the next two months before Christmas doing nothing but jigsaw puzzling. I don't know if you're a jigsaw guy, Matt, but that, that to me, this sounds right up there with wanting to have a prostate exam with a belt. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> I mean, going to go there, but, uh, really I just think, so, so that would, man, that would take up a lot of the, I'm just trying to think of the, like, I can't even think of the scale of that thing. It's definitely a floor is, thing though. Well, 29, again, 29 yeah. feet wide. So, yeah. um, bigger than most rooms in your house. Like most people, many people wouldn't even have a room in their house large enough to hold this thing. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, but still 60. Th- and you know what the worst part is 60 it, when we have, when we, and I don't do jigsaw puzzles a lot, but you know, in the summer or up at the cottage or whatever, you dump it onto the table and maybe it's 200 pieces or 250 pieces. First of all, it takes you a while to turn over all the pieces, but with 60,000 pieces, how do you possibly find the ones that go together? Yeah. It would be so frustrating. You know, I, I'm not like a someone that gets like anxiety from something like that, but like I, I, I'm just thinking about it. It's getting close. It's getting close. This, you're right. This, this could be anxiety provoking. I think that's probably very, very true. If you have anxiety disorder, this would not be the Christmas gift for you. Uh, I would, I would expect. All right. Speaking of anxiety, then, Matt, what would be your, if you have one, what would be your number one fear, your phobia? Yeah, I'm not really good with heights to okay. a point, to a point. If I feel okay. like, if, I, if I'm if i like, this is this is fine, this is safe, I'm good with heights. Like, I've been on the top of the CN Tower, but yeah, I would say heights. Okay, so uh, heights, uh, I would agree. Heights for me is one, but this one, and it ties into this latest story. For me, the probably number one thing would be being buried. Somehow being caught underground, trapped or something. Well, in... Russia, uh, and I don't know why you would possibly ever think you want to do this, but a company in Russia is offering customers the opportunity, that's, that's quite a word for this, the opportunity to be buried alive as part of therapy to help people manage their fears and anxieties. I don't know how burying yourself alive or being buried alive would help with your anxiety. It would make it a hundred thousand times worse, but it will cost you 58 thousand euros to do this yeah. i didn't even translate that that's a lot of money okay so but the thing is though you do trust them to get you out that's part of the question isn't it so is this really going to work aside from like the initial shock i don't know so this the, it, to explain it the burial lasts for 20 minutes to an hour after which point you will be buried alive in a full immersion burial, a full like dirt covered on you and everything for up to an hour. Okay. So you don't know exactly how long you're going to be there. Even, (laughs) even if you can keep track of time like that, probably not. The burial advertises itself as a means of renewing a person's desire to live. (laughs) 
or to require anxiety medication in volumes so significant that you would never be able to eat anything but anxiety medication. That I just this to me is the most just talking about it is making me clench up. Yeah, it's horrible. I don't even think I would go in one of those isolation things that's not buried even. So yeah, this is definitely a no for me as well. Like one of those floating isolation. Yeah, tanks. I don't think I could do that. I, I, I would have a hard time with that too. You're right. It just there, there is something about. Although the oh yeah, we'll just leave it there because yeah, honestly, yeah. it is. It's making me. It's, yeah. it's making me jittery <laughs> just talking about it. Uh, last one, uh, story number three today. We often, and I did this last night on the show. We often talk about idiot criminals. Last night we were talking about someone who robbed someone in an ATM machine and left behind his prison identification card. Not brilliant. Well. Let's do another idiot criminal because they are out there. This one is from Georgia where this is, this is almost too stupid to imagine. These people robbed a house right before Thanksgiving as part of what they took. Somebody in their group, somebody in the group of people who robbed this house, who burgled this house, stole a bunch of Halloween candy. Well, it appears that the person who stole the Halloween candy, because why not grab it on your way out the door, was not only really hungry, but had never read any nursery rhymes. Because they were eating this candy as they were walking away from the house, and believe it or not, according to police, left a trail of wrappers <laughs> that, led police, that led police to the burglars. Which is just awesome. That you follow... A, a, how much candy are you eating? And how good were the police to go hey wait that rapper let's follow the rappers led right to them that's hilarious so will your story of the day today be the giant 60,000 piece 29 foot jigsaw puzzle will it be the well the therapeutic allegedly offer to be buried alive for 58,000 euros to help with your anxiety or will it be the burglars who were caught because they left a trail of candy wrappers I think this is the toughest one yet. I'm, I, I really want to say the jigsaw puzzle, but it's got to be the burglars with the candy because how does that even happen? Like again, how? Yeah, how much of that candy did you have to eat for that to happen? For that to be there and stay there? Yeah, I, I got to go with that one. Why not just wait till you get to your house and then crack into it? Problem solved. Not that we're trying to advise criminals on how to do their behavior, but nonetheless. Anyway, there is Matt's story of the day. When we come back, we're going to talk to a Hamilton guy who has just been hired by the Chicago Cubs as a as their baseball scientist. What does that even mean? Well, stick around. We're going to find out. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hour number two, the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for being with us. Really glad that you are along. Not as glad as I would be if I was the guy in the States. I don't know if you heard this. This was going around yesterday. There was a guy in the States who made a 17, what is it, a 17 leg parlay? I'm not much of a gambler. But he made a bet that required 17 things to happen. All to do with the NFL. 17 things had to happen for him to win. Things like, for example, Tennessee's running back, Derrick Henry, had to get a touchdown at any point in the game. That's okay. That's not bad. Um, Carolina's wide receiver, DJ Moore, had to get over 58 and a half receiving yards. Got 152. Uh, New York Giants running back, Saquon Barkley, had to score a touchdown. You got that. So 17 things had to happen. 
going into last night's game, all 16 that he needed had already happened. This was unbelievable. This guy had made a bet for $7.77. $7.77. And winning, if he got all 17, which he did, paid him $124,336. Seven, less than $8 turned into almost $125,000. That is, I am not a gambler. I assure you that under no circumstances could I possibly have pulled off a 17-item parlay. Never could have done it, but that's unbelievable. That almost makes me think I should take up gambling, but I won't. Because again, I I know better and I know, I know that I would never win, so I'm not going to start. Anyway, let me give you your quiz question this evening. Since that guy scored, and this was not even intentional, but since he scored, your quiz question is this, how many years, same word, different meaning. How many years are there in a score? Score can be used as a a reference of time. How many years are there in a score? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the phone numbers. Give Matt a call on one of those. 905-645-3221, 905-645-3221, star 9900, or text me, 905-645-3221, same number. That's the text number. Put your first name, please, and your answer. We'll get to it at the end of the show. How many years are in a score? 905-645-3221, star 9900. There are a few jobs. I mean, as a baseball fan myself, there are a few jobs that I look at, and I know that I am entirely unqualified to do. I wouldn't have the foggiest idea where to begin, but you read it and you go, that sounds incredibly cool. Don't know what it means. Don't know what you would do, but it sounds like something that would be a lot of fun. Well, I came across one of those on Twitter this week. I was flipping through. I don't even know how I came upon it. And all of a sudden I saw a guy from Hamilton announcing he's just been accepted in the role of baseball scientist with the Chicago Cubs. His name is Dr. Mike Son. I, I almost pronounced it right. Dr. Mike Son. We'll explain why that in a second. Uh, he joins me now. Doctor, thank you for this. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's definitely going to be the coolest job title I ever have in my life. No kidding. And when I said yawn, it was because I was trying to remember how to pronounce your last name. And I heard it rhymes with yawn. Well, of course, then I go and say yawn as opposed to son. Anyway, we got it now. <laughs> yeah, that's this, on me. That's on me. <laughs> no, this is, this is, as I say, I, I don't know. And we'll get into that in just a second. I don't know what baseball scientist means. I do definitely want to find out. But you know what? Before we even get to that, getting any job. If, if you're a baseball fan, there are certain places you want to get a job with the Cubs, the probably most historic place working at Wrigley with the flag going up. And it, that is that is the peak, I would think. Yeah, I mean, uh, the history uh, behind the Chicago Cubs and and just, you know, they, they've had a, a pretty tormented history. But everything that happened in 2016 and just seeing what it meant to that city uh getting the opportunity to try and help with the Cubs and, you know, hopefully contribute to another world series and, and some wins uh, you basically can live forever if, uh, if you're successful in doing that. So it's a, it's a very humbling, but very exciting opportunity. No kidding. So you are a, a Toronto guy who grew up and spent time in Windsor for your undergrad, then came to Hamilton, have been here since 2010 doing your PhD in 
Uh, my PhD is in kinesiology from McMaster with uh, an emphasis on on biomechanics and specifically uh, ergonomics and occupational biomechanics. Okay, so the ergonomics, I'm not sure I would see the application in baseball, although you can help me with that. But the rest of it absolutely would be sounding very much like what people, what teams would want people studying their players, especially pitchers. Yeah, and I mean, I think the ergonomic side is is a lot more connected than uh, than we think. Uh, primarily working with pitchers, you're talking about people that do high exertions on short cycle times, uh, highly repetitively. And that sounds exactly like somebody who's working at Ford or working for Amazon or on some sort of an assembly line. And uh, how I got into baseball originally, uh, aside from just being a big fan, was I published a paper that took my ergonomics model on predicting muscle fatigue and showed that putting in a pitch clock would lead to more fatigue in pitchers. So that was kind of my entry point and my sneaky way of making everyone read my my PhD thesis. So is knowing that some minor leagues have either or brought in the pitch clock or are going to be bring in the pitch clock and made the major leagues have eh, talked about it here and there, is this the Cubs getting ahead of the curve, anticipating that there's going to be one someday and having you on board to explain to help with this? Well, uh, I, as far as I know, uh, Major League Baseball is implementing the pitch clock uh, in the 2023 season um, and all of the minor leagues uh, had it last year. So we're definitely ahead of the curve and uh, and trying to account for you know some of the unique demands that that pitch clock is going to impose on our pitchers. I had completely forgotten that it had been a done deal. I knew it was being talked about, but okay, so there you go. So how would... Sp- now, the pitch clock, for those who don't know, is exactly that. It's kind of like the shot clock in basketball. You have to throw a pitch within a certain period of time to keep the game moving. How will this affect pitchers? Obviously, it would probably put a little more emphasis on cardio, but how about for their plyometrics and their kinetics and all those kinds of things? Does it change how they throw a ball? So if you think about going to the gym and say you're doing a, a, a set of bicep curls and you do a rep every every two seconds if you shorten that down to every second or you shorten the rest time between your sets you're not going to be able to lift as much weight the next time because essentially what happens is your muscles lose their ability to generate force and they're not able to accomplish the task the same way they were when they were fresh Uh, and that's what we're expecting to see in pitching to some extent is the ability to protect the body um, will diminish because the pitchers will become fatigued, particularly their shoulder and their their arm muscles. Um, and we need to be able to account for that. And that can be by tweaking our mechanics. Um, that can be by in the offseason getting the pitchers stronger. Uh, or it can even be by getting used to that type of, of motion and making sure that when you do practice pitching, you are pitching to a clock and you're used to those demands. Is the is the fear or the the purpose here, I guess, is it more about performance as in how do we keep them performing at the same level if they become fatigued or is the greater fear that when you become fatigued, there's a greater likelihood of an injury and we're paying these guys millions of dollars? How do we prevent that? Yeah, and I, I think it's even more than just the guys getting paid millions of dollars, right? It's the guys that are getting paid $50,000 in the minor leagues that have the opportunity yeah. to to make it to the next level. Um, and I think performance and health are very, very tightly related. If uh, if your performance goes way down, chances are you're not healthy. And you, know, you are going to do things that can put you in a position to be less healthy, like 
going out and pitching on a, a shorter rest or, you know, overexerting yourself. So they're very tightly related. And I think anything to do with fatigue is going to impact your velocity, your command, um, as well as your health. So you presumably could have taken your thesis and put it to anything. You talked about, you know, going to the gym and doing curls or whatever else. I mean, is your specialty in the motion that a pitcher uses to throw a ball or could what you do be applied literally to any sport in which someone has to do something quickly and repetitively? Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely something that can be applied across the board. Um, I did uh, most recently work for a company called 3Motion AI, and we developed a product called Pitch AI, which was doing a biomechanics assessment of how pitchers moved just from your cell phone. So definitely some expertise in understanding the movement of pitching and, and how we can optimize that. Uh, but that's actually part of the reason why we have a job title like baseball scientist as opposed to biomechanist um, because we can apply some of these principles to so many things but we can also tap into other domains like physiology and psychology it's really important to keep it general and to accept whatever might be the best tool to solve that problem for for that given situation I would think one of the really tricky parts about this, though, is that every anyone who watches baseball knows every pitcher does things slightly differently, and and, and even more so than you know an ergonomist is that dynamic or ergonomist. I'm not sure how <laughs> yeah, you say that. That's pretty close. Yep. All right, but if you're watching someone sit at their desk, they may type differently, but the differences are so subtle. Everyone looks basically basically the same. A pitcher, every single pitcher throws a little bit differently. So there's different strains on different muscles and tendons and everything else. This is, this seems like it's something that you can't apply blanket across. Every single person has to have their own unique study done. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the errors that has been previously made in this field is just assuming that you can have a one size fits all approach to every pitcher. And there's one certain set of mechanics that are going to work for everybody to get them to throw hard and to, to keep them healthy. When in reality, because everyone is so different, people are going to have different mechanics and they're going to produce force and velocity in different ways. And it's really important to respect and, uh, you know, really encourage those individual difference that, that make the pitchers themselves. Uh, speaking of individuality, did you play uh, growing up? Have you been a baseball player or always on the sidelines as the the numbers guy or the fantasy player or whatever else? <laughs> I, I played up until high school, but definitely not at a very high level. But does playing impact that, even if it's only as a, you know, as a high school player or as a little leaguer or something like that, having done it, does that make it easier to understand this stuff rather than someone who looks at it purely from a, academic point of view? Well, I, I th it's an interesting question because I think one of the things that has happened in recent years is there's this fight between the old school and the new school and oh, yeah. it's the, the statisticians and the analysts, you know, they don't get along with the coaches and that <laughs> when the, the optimal solution is that uh, everybody needs to be on the same page. And there's so much for the analysts and the stats folks to to learn from the the baseball lifers that have been coaching their entire lives. And, you know, I, I had a very, very 
<laughs> early playing career, but even, you know, over the last two years, um, I've been coaching in Hamilton uh, with the Steel City Inclusive Softball Association. Mm. And as much as that's about as far from Major League Baseball as you can get, uh, it's been really exciting and fun to apply a lot of the same things we do with our Major League pitchers to people who are, you know, maybe in their 30s and playing for the first time and and seeing how quickly they can, you know, learn a new skill. So uh, pulling expertise from different areas it's just about as most important thing you can do to be successful in this type of uh, field. But okay. Using an example, whether it's that one or even with kids in little league, because one of the things when kids are starting, a lot of coaches all try to get kids to throw the same. And I, I, I'm not an expert. And yet I look at this and I think, well, shouldn't we look at how a kid throws and think that's kind of the natural, you know, how their body wants them to throw a ball to some degree. And I'm never sure whether the right idea is to say, no, no, you've got to throw it the way the book tells you to throw it. Or if we should say that's natural, work on that. How, how do we decide what to do? And, and now extrapolating this to major league pitchers where their arm angle might be different or the all kinds of different things. How do we work that? Yeah, I mean, the natural throwing motion is definitely um, for many people the best one. Right. And uh, I think what you tend to see in baseball is that people get overcoached into changing their mechanics. And sometimes there's too much of an emphasis on their mechanics when what you should really be studying is how do strength deficiencies or range of motion deficiencies impact how somebody moves. In the case of fatigue, like we're talking about, we know somebody may have a natural throwing motion, but as they become fatigued and their muscles start to lose strength, maybe their knee angle is different or their shoulder angle is different. And understanding those changes is probably more important than saying you need to throw exactly like this every single time. So the fact that you're going to the Cubs and they've hired someone to help with this pitch clock coming in, and as you say, they are ahead of the curve, sounds terrific. If a team doesn't hire a Mike Son to come in and do this, and I'm assuming there probably won't be every team that does this, would you anticipate that because of the things you've studied, there would be more injuries if it's not prepared for? Um, I Fatigue, like I was saying earlier, has a lot of implications for both performance and injury. Um, what I think you can see is that as much as in the minor leagues, the pitch clock has shortened games quite significantly. When you get to the major league level, there's different decisions made because there's different emphasis on on what's happening. And winning is a lot more important than player development once you get to the majors. And if somebody's becoming fatigued earlier, um, their performance will drop off, but they're going to get pulled from that game earlier um, mm -hmm. in, in that case there too. So, you know, you may see a lot more pitchers getting pulled earlier, um, a lot more pitchers that are throwing fewer pitches per game um, and that type of thing. And I think if, you know, the fatigue effects are not accounted for in training, um, you definitely could see a decline in performance and, and possibly in health as well. Yeah. And I could, you know, we've already seen starting pitchers become less of a factor, uh, at least as far as, you know, complete games in baseball are down so far from the days when Fergie Jenkins threw what, like 200 complete games in his life or something like mm -hmm. that, I would expect is going to continue to go down there for the reason you just explained, probably. Yeah, though, I mean, in this this past season, uh, particularly in the playoffs right now, we are seeing the starters uh, factoring in a lot more. Um, the one biggest thing I would say compared to previous generations and like the Fergie Jenkins, uh, you know, example there is starting pitchers uh, of that generation didn't throw remotely as close to their maximum as they are now. 
um, guys are just throwing so close to their maximum that that causes them to fatigue a lot more. And the, the decision has been made, you know, let's get the best possible pitches out of our pitchers at any time. And once you've run out of your best possible pitches, we'll go to the next guy. It is uh, it is such a cool thing. Hey, while I have you on here, because you know what? I don't get to talk to a baseball scientist all that often. And you just touched on something about the maximum. Why is it that a hundred or thereabouts seems to be the maximum? We've always improved in every kind of sport or everything else. And then we hit this number and we can't go past that. Why would that be? Uh, because it's a nice round number that somebody <laughs> thought was cool. That's what I thought. That's what I, and like 10 seconds for the hundred, like all these numbers that we brought in, but it's true. There seems to be all of a sudden a limit to what we could do. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, I've, I've written some articles about the hundred pitch limit and there's really nothing there. <laughs> um, just like there was nothing there for the Verducci effect that uh, some researchers from University of Waterloo had had proven, you know, that 30% increase in innings, whatever, that didn't cause a surge in injuries either. So no, but a hundred miles an hour, like we get to a hundred and like, I know some guys will throw 102 or 103, but mm -hmm. around that mark, we can't, no one is throwing 115, even though training and diet and everything is so much better. Why, what is, why can we not keep improving? Well, I mean, from that perspective of of how hard you can throw, you know, there are going to be biological limitations on on tissue, without a doubt. Um, that being said, you know, there's more hundred mile an hour pitches thrown this year than there ever were before. Um, yeah. So the, the you know everyone is is getting better, and you know we're seeing you know with the Jays, for example, that first game of the wild card where. Uh, Castillo was throwing 100 into the seventh inning, and then Munoz came in throwing 103. You know, there's a lot more guys throwing 103 now, and and who knows what that'll look like in in five years? That might be 105. It is a fascinating thing. So when you watch the Cubs uh, for the next years to come, you can be cheering knowing there's a guy who spent a lot of time in Hamilton at Mac who's calling Hamilton home. Well, until he moves to Chicago, but you know, we're going to, we're going to continue to claim anybody who comes from Hamilton and goes to Chicago as one of our own. Uh, Mike Son, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about wine here for a minute. Red wine, especially. Well, not necessarily red wine, probably red wine. I'll tell you why. I don't know that there is any item, edible or otherwise, that has been studied like wine. Have you ever noticed this? That it seems every week there's another study that tells us wine helps your heart, wine helps your lungs, wine helps your skin, wine. There is. It's almost like the wine industry has a science office. Let's come out with a new study. Wine solves incontinence. I have, they haven't come out with that one that I've seen yet. I just made that one up. Don't, don't be going to someone going, just drink wine. That'll help. No, no. Let's go through some of these. This Because this I, I, I find amazing. Some of the things that we are now told about wine. What wine will do for you. Now, some of you don't like wine. Uh, don't worry, hang in till the end. But for those who do, let's start with this one. The University of Illinois found that if you drink wine in moderation, your brain works faster. I would have thought it would have been the opposite. I thought that normally anyone who drinks alcohol, things slow down a little bit. It's a depressant, but they're saying, no, if you 
this is this is the this is the Doctor Johnny Fever school school of wine drinking. Remember from WKRP when the more intoxicated he got, the quicker his answers got in a skill testing question series. Um, if you drink wine in moderation, your brain will work faster. University of Illinois says. All right, that's a good study if you're a uh, if you're a wine liker. Here's one that the University of Barcelona says that if you drink wine, red wine, no, sorry, red wine is okay, but white wine helps prevent cancer, they say. Uh-huh. That apparently they have high amounts of antioxidants. Again, I thought that that was red wine. Who knew? But apparently, according to the University of Barcelona, that white wine pumps up your antioxidants and therefore it will help fight cancer. All right, there's another one. So we got two. All right, now we're getting into a real one here. This is this is this is the Canadian one for this time of year. According to the, a study in the American that was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology, again, wine's antioxidant contents boost your immune system, according to Carnegie Mellon researchers, and help prevent colds. So if you don't want cancer and you don't want a cold, and you want your brain to work faster. So far, there are three things already they say you need to drink wine for. Unless, of course, you're allergic to it because of the histamines, in which case you may not prevent a cold, but you may end up having a feeling like a cold. But uh, I digress. Uh, here's the big one. This is some um, numerous, numerous studies have found that red wine is good for your heart. Turns out that there is something in it called resveratrol and that can prevent damage to blood vessels and reduce bad cholesterol and even prevent blood clots this is what they say so red wine will help with your with your heart so that's that's a good thing now this next one i'm finding a little bit difficult to, to believe but you know somewhere along the way someone did a study the university of alberta so we're north of the border here for this one the university of alberta found that drinking Wine helps with your workouts. <laughs> I can I can only imagine someone listening to this going, well, forget the water bottle then. I'm filling it up with red wine. When I go to the gym and I need a squirt of, I'm just having wine in that thing. Well, that that would be interesting. It would be interesting. Uh, the Again, resveratrol, that same thing that was supposed to help with your heart. Well... Uh, it will help, they say, with your heart and even with muscle strength. In fact, and here again is where I'm getting a little suspicious, but nonetheless, they're going with this. In short, they say drinking wine can actually mimic physical exercise. In other words, this study is saying you don't even have to go to the gym. Just drink wine and it's like a workout. It's not exactly what they're saying. I'm, I'm paraphrasing somewhat. I may not have got that quite right. Nonetheless, um, yeah, you can, this will help your, boost your heart rate and everything else. So you will do better at the gym, they say, if you drink wine. Let's switch a little bit because it's still a wine. But let's talk about champagne for a moment. And again, a study that just seems like it's the opposite of what, it really should be. But a study at, uh, from the University of Reading finds that champagne helps your memory. Now, 
there's no possible way this could be true because first of all, most people don't drink a glass of champagne. You're going to drink multiple glasses of champagne most of the time because it's for a celebration. And I don't know that anyone who drinks multiple glasses of anything have had their memory helped. Very much the opposite. You wake up the next morning after your several glasses of champagne or more, and you're like, I don't remember what happened last night. That does not seem like it's a memory booster. But they're saying that phenolic compounds found in sparkling wine can improve spatial memory. So if you believe them, if you believe them, your memory will be aided by drinking wine. Okay, well, champagne anyway. Uh, once again, another one that, like so many of these, I'm sitting here listening going, I'm not sure I'm buying the thesis or the premise behind this, but they swear that these studies are true. Wine can help you live longer, a research paper found. Now, again, I, I think the, the part of this that had been left out in the pricey is a limited controlled amount of wine. If wine can help you live longer, there's an awful lot of people who, you know, drink an awful lot of wine. It has not helped them live longer. It's, it's, it's really screwed things up for them. So there's that, but they're saying, no, no, a little bit of wine here and there is moderate drinking of wine will make you live longer. All right. Uh, here's one. This is, this is from Boston University School of Medicine. The all-time stupidest study into wine, uh, unquestionably. This, if they got a grant to do this study, whoever issued the grant should immediately be fired from giving out any more grants because this is the most obvious, stupid study anyone could have possibly pitched. Drinking wine every day makes you happier. Well, really? You think that maybe if you like wine, and you get to drink it every day, you might not be happier? Really? What a, what a deep, insightful result that is to find that out. The more wine you drink, the happier you get, so they say. Uh-huh. Wow. That's quite a study. The wine industry here, we're moving away from wine itself. Now we're into the whole industry. The wine industry. So says a study from the Norwegian University of Life Sciences is good for bees. Bees like grapes. Bees, I guess, benefit from it. And that same resveratrol can help bees live longer. If that matters to you, that you can aid the life of bees. Okay. Uh, wine, according to Harvard University, according to Harvard University, Wine can be a perfect bedtime snack for staying thin. <laughs> okay, now come on. This is, well, this, the story here, it's a study where some women drank half a bottle of wine a day and others did not. And they found that the women who drank half a bottle of wine a day were far less obese. This seems like the kind of study where you might have to interpret the study itself because just maybe when they guzzled half a bottle of wine a day, they were asleep in front of the TV so they didn't snack on the food compared to those who were awake and therefore they snacked. I'm not sure that one plus one equals two here saying drink half a bottle of wine every day and you will be thinner. 
I think what they're saying is drink half a bottle of wine every day and you will pass out and therefore not snack, which I guess ultimately leads to the same result you're trying to get to, though um, your liver may not thank you. Wine, according to the Journal of Dermatology and Therapy, again, resveratrol, this is what you know, as I'm reading all these, why are we drinking all this wine as opposed to just selling resveratrol in capsules? Seems to be doing all the good work. But anyway, red wine, this study from the journal Dermatology and Therapy, will make you more attractive. And again, we have to clarify, not just to the people who are drinking lots of the wine. <laughs> we know we know how that works, right? Everybody, if you're around someone who's been drinking a lot more wine, anyone around them, to them, is going to look a lot more attractive. Uh-huh, it's the goggles, right? We know about that one. But um, it, appear, it appears they're saying also that resveratrol will help cut back on some type of bacteria that leads to acne, so you can you can be better looking if you drink more. Interesting. Drinking red wine... According to a Spanish study, nine ounces a day of Merlot will help the good bacteria in your colon and lead to healthy digestion. Okay, so you will have a happy colon if you drink wine, so the studies are saying. The European Foundation for the Study of Diabetes. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing the flag on this one. This one also seems to be really like, really? Uh, the university, the, the European Foundation for the Study of Diabetes found moderate regular consumption of wine can be beneficial. Aren't diabetics supposed to stay away from alcohol by and large? Because it becomes sugar when you digest it, when you metabolize it. But they're saying, no, no, it's all good. All right. I, 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 this one, if you're listening and you're thinking, hey, I'm a diabetic, Radley's giving out medical advice. No, 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 no. I uh, This one, as I say, I'm throwing a flag on this one. This one sounds like it's the opposite of what's true. A white wine, according to the University of Buffalo, white wine says, white, uh, says consumption will help lung health. One glass of Chardonnay a day will lead to healthier lungs. Why? I did not read the entire study. I can't tell you, and the praise doesn't include it. Why not? Why not? Who's going to argue? Now, white wine can also reduce stress. A study show, numerous studies say say wine will reduce stress. Yes, again, because drink enough of it and you won't care anymore. <laughs> that, that does not seem like it's much of a study, to be very, very honest. However, having said all of that, Having said all of that, let's go to the study that came out in, let's see, what year are we talking here? 2022, April the 1st, which is not an April Fool's joke. This is an actual story in the Washington Post. It just happens to be on that day. Well, a team of researchers recently analyzed the connection of all these different things, and it was published uh, the, that week. It examined 40, 400,000 people who were drinking wine as part of a study. And uh, sorry, wine lovers, the headline says, no amount of alcohol is good for you. Oh, so, you know, 
You can, you can go with the studies that say it's good for you. You can go with a study that says it's not good for you. I, I don't know what to tell you, but um, it seems as though, according to this study, you're actually better off to have a good diet and exercise, and that will be healthier rather than relying on wine to solve all your problems. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? There are many more. I, we only touched on them. I, I have such a list of wine studies in front of me. It's amazing how many people have studied wine to come up with things, pro and con. Anyway, your quiz question this evening, nothing to do with wine. How many years are in a score? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Love to hear your answer. Give Matt a call. Text us, 905-645-3221. Text us and give your first name, please. Going to come back with the answer and those who knew it right after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. How many years are in a score? That is your quiz question this evening. How many years are in a score? Well, that would be 20 years is a score. Matt, anyone know that one tonight? Yeah, we've got Zorro, Rick, Mike, Frank, Wayne, Paul, Lynn, Roy, Hugh, Brandy, Jackie, John, Alexandra, Janet, Arnie, Russell, and Gino. That's a lot more. And Mike just got in under the wire. Mike, the geography teacher on in under the wire. And by the way, I never do this, but I was requested this from yesterday. They missed the answer. Yesterday's quiz question that was so tough, they never got the answer. Halloween is short for All Hallows' Eve. What is a hallow? A hallow is a saint or a holy person. So that's what yesterday was all about. Folks, thanks for being here today. We will be back at 6 tomorrow. Would love it if you were along with us. We'll talk to you then. And boom goes the dynamite. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.